Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, this is Julie Bowen. I'm Chad Sanders. And this is Quitters, the final episode of season one. That's right. But you know why you don't have to be too sad? We're coming back for season two. Season two with video. Today, it's just the two of us, just like it was the first time you heard from us. That's right. I didn't know we were going to talk about this stuff, but we talked about some interesting, scary, fun, weird stuff. We've talked about getting to know each other, and that's been a really interesting journey. And we've talked about some quits before we head off for our summer adventures, but we are coming back for season two. Here it is, last episode of season one of Quitters. Enjoy. Does Suburban Mom obsessed with Kendrick Lamar ruin it for you? Because it ruins for my kids. They're like, Suburban Mom likes it. I was just talking to my mom about you being a Suburban Mom. Suburban Mom <laughs> loves Kendrick's new album. They're about to delete it. <laughs> it's because I'm like, come and take off the foo-foo. Take off the god chase. Take off. And they're like, ugh. I think that's why Kendrick has had such success. Because even Suburban Moms like what he's talking about. Because what he's talking about, though, is so... Good. I never get tired of listening to you because it's like all, it's like take off all that shit and who are you? You're a broke ass bitch who's pretending. <laughs> and I love that. There's something to it. I uh, See, I ruined it. Suburban mom. No, it's fine. He can be a little scolding when you don't have a lot. Sometimes you just want to look like you have a lot. Is that okay? Do you have to yell at us, Kendrick, about that? Here's my question. Yes. I don't know enough about Kendrick. There had to have been a point because he remembers syrup sandwiches. There's a point in his life when he didn't have a lot. That's correct. Was he preaching the same shit when he had nothing? By the time I came to be aware of him, probably 12 years ago. Right. At that point, he was probably in life right about where I am now. So he had a little bit. He wasn't rich, rich. He was always saying the same thing? Yeah. Okay. He was a little more fun then too, though. He was a little more, I am in it and I participate. I see that it's a little bit wrong, but I'm still here. I'm still with you. And now he's like, I've left you guys behind. I'm over here. I do my own thing. And some people love that. Some people think it's so woke and smart and stuff. And he is all those things, but it's also a little scolding. I don't need to be scolded. I get it. I guess maybe suburban moms like a scold. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> 
You look really cute, man. You look happier. What's going on? Well, I went to bed last night a quarter of nine is what happened. After the Mavericks were stinking up my screen so bad. And I was so upset because I have a nephew who loves Golden State. I don't blame him. Mm. And he literally, after the second game when Golden State won, he just texts me, get out your broom. And I'm like, don't! Because you're a Clippers fan? I'm a Clippers fan. I love an underdog. Don't you love an underdog? Sometimes. I like the Warriors. I love Steph. And Steph started off as an underdog. And so did Draymond. Draymond was never an underdog. He was. He was a second round draft pick. Second round is not an underdog. That is. I mean, there's only two (laughs) rounds. I like to believe that the American dream is real. And it's not. The American dream is not real. It's bullshit. It is not a level playing field. Everybody doesn't start from the same place. And like some people just pop up. We all want to believe it in sports. You do. And it's not in sports either. We should do a sports podcast, Julie. That can be our next. (gasps) We should. Well, you were talking about your sister, yes, Shannon, and that's how I wanted to get into talking about some of our guests this year. She was our most recent one, okay, and she kind of blew my mind. She is a really wonderful, inspirational person. I want to talk to her more. Okay. (laughs) I really do want to talk to her more because I want to know of her experience. I feel like I've gotten to know you over the last year. We met in April of 2021. Sounds right. And it's now May May 2022. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I've gotten to know you through doing this podcast, Mm -hmm. through doing all of our interviews and pre-interviews and talking. And I've gotten to know you and your story and who you are, where the soft spots are, where you don't fuck around. And it's so interesting to meet your sister as our last guest because it's such an interesting reflection on you. You're not twins, but you were raised in the same house, yeah. the same parents, you had the same early life experience. And I want to poke further. I want to see, does she have the same soft spots? Does she have the same do not fuck with me spots? What's Chad? What's Shannon? What was nature? What's nurture? Because finally I have some (laughs) compare and contrast that's fair. Mm. It's not 100% fair. She's not your identical twin, but it's fair. Yeah. And we have some almost twin like sensibilities a little bit. We've always been close, even when we were little fighting nuggets. I'm doing a project right now where I'm examining a year of my high school life through some experiences that I had, and I interviewed her for it. Something that can't be understated is that we basically had the same life experiences growing up, except she's a girl and I'm a guy. And that created such divergent experiences for us in the exact same house, in the exact same city, in the exact same state. You know what's really interesting? I would say that would be, in my experience, I don't have a brother, but I watch with boys and girls, with white boys and girls, Mm -hmm. the boys, they got a way longer leash, let me say. Mm. With their parents? Yeah. Okay. Reading your book, where it all started back with Black Magic, the fact that your father would drive behind the bus to the games, the need to protect you is almost analogous has some similarities to the way that you would protect a girl, yeah, white or black, just because girls get protected a different way because they can get pregnant, they can get hurt, you know. And there is a level that maybe brought you even closer than a white brother and sister. Yeah. Because your parents were so careful with you, not protecting you from the real world, but introducing you to the real world in a way that you would understand what the real traps and problems were. You don't drive with more than two guys in the car, no head things, no speeding, no loud music. And that's the kind of restraints that I feel families give girls. You don't go out after dark. You can't invite trouble to come to you. I think there's a lot of truth to that. 
I would say before even getting into it, especially current events have highlighted the fact that Black people anywhere on the gender spectrum are subject to the increased risk of physical harm by police, by hate crimes and otherwise. With that said, where we grew up in the suburbs, and I think this is the case for most of America, I was a basketball player in high school, and that was my social cachet was that I played a sport because otherwise... Like my sister, I think she'd be comfortable with me saying this. We were nerdy. We were artsy kids, but that wasn't cool then. And we were writers. We were in our heads. And I played a sport. And where I went to high school, it was so Friday Night Lights, suburban public high school. If you play a sport, you are now invited to the party. And particularly so for Black boys. And I would say we were particularly what's the word, idolized, but also sexualized by the white kids. And so that really put us in harm's way in a way that I only now as an adult can understand. I remember you talking again, I think it was in your book, about walking into these parties where there was bonfires and loud music at some white kid's house, but they were your teammates. They weren't my teammates, but they were the cool. Yeah, but there were cool kids of all races, but the cool white kids kind of sat atop the hierarchy at my high school because they had the big houses. Right. They could have parties. Their parents would let you drink and smoke in their houses. Right. It felt like a free zone. Right. And you were aware, though, at the time, or are you saying you were only aware later on when you would walk into those parties? Where's the exit? Where are the other black kids? If the police show up that you are not holding something, do not return the flirtations of the white girls, it's a trap. I knew that those were supposed to be the rules, but I was a kid. Uh. My parents said, be careful in these places. You're not really supposed to go in white people's houses like that. You should be especially careful with white girls. They would say all that. They also said, don't eat chocolate after a certain time. <laughs> I'm just saying as example, them saying don't do that shit, it just made it more enchanting. So you didn't have fear? The fear was mixed into the enchantment. And I like horror. I like fear. It was exciting. It was exciting. This whole other world opened up. You know, we would lie. I would tell them I was going to pick up my friends. We were going to sleep over at somebody's house. Right. And then we would go to the white party. Right. We would leave at 4 a.m. We'd go sleep in the parking lot at our high school because... You all told the lies. Right. Your kids are going to start doing that too soon. I'm sure. It was such a spotlight on us. Uh-huh. At the time, that felt like love. It felt like celebrity. We were so cool and interesting. As I grew into adulthood and I went to an HBCU and I learned what was underneath some of that stuff, I came to understand that it was obsession, which is to me almost the opposite of love. We just weren't the same. And again, they were kids too. I don't think they were going through all these machinations in their heads or whatever about it, but there were times where their parents would see, let's say, six of us show up at one time because we always went together. Right. And specifically, I mean, six black ball players. They would almost make us choose. Only three of you all can come in at a time kind of thing. We would literally choose. And then we would go around to the back and try to let the other guys in. But the kids would sort of hold the rules of the house. And the other thing I'll say about it is, and I don't know how to handle this in the project that I'm doing, but it had a feeling of guys only. Only the black boys are allowed. Because of your sports cachet? I can't exactly slice it all apart. I think part of it was our sports cachet. I think part of it is just straight up sexism and dehumanization of black women, which I think spreads down to children. Because white girls at that party could and would sexualize you. Yeah, and in their own way, it kind of felt like the boys would do it too. They really wanted to touch us a lot. 
I still feel this. When I walk into a space with a bunch of white people, I feel like people want to touch me. And I should say, not you. You're kind of a touching person. You touch people a lot. I'm touchy all the time. Yeah. But this is interesting. Was there a point when you liked it before you went to Morehouse and intellectually dissected it? I mean, at that point in high school, I wanted to drink it up with a straw. I was in high school. I wanted to just be included. I wanted to be at the cool party. So on Monday, when everyone was talking about the party, I was there. And also the white girls were more forward sexually. They were more the aggressor. How'd you feel about that? As a 16 year old, I felt great about it. I'm just gonna be honest. I was like, oh, I need to hang out at those parties more. Why not? Why is that bad? It sounds awesome. It's bad because it's dangerous. That can turn on you. I'll give an example. When we did have a friend of ours, two black girls who we were really close to in high school, a couple of them came to one of the parties with us. This was the first and only time that they came with us to the party. And one of them was accused of stealing a purse. So we all, the black kids, we all had to leave together. Of course, she did not steal the purse. No, she didn't steal the purse. Purse was under the couch or something crazy like that. Right. And so then we were invited back, but she was not. At that point, we kind of got the message. I think that's how the bullying passes down. Well, we feel like we're allowed here, but it sounds like the black girls aren't allowed here. So now we're participating in the exclusion. Got it. I mean, that's keeping it light. There's terrible stuff that happens to black kids in white people's houses. To be honest, thinking about the stuff that went down in some of those houses, I'm lucky that no parent came home drunk one day and just decided, I don't like how this kid's looking at me. He did something to my daughter. I know those stories. I know guys who have been locked up for stuff like that. Absolutely. Stories have been written about it. Movies have been made about it. But if you were that 16-year-old kid in 2022 Mm -hmm. and black pop culture has only gotten bigger, more dominant. Yeah. (laughs) You're texting me about Kendrick Lamar's album. (laughs) I know, ruining it. Suburban Mom ruins it for you. Yeah. But what would you tell that kid now that one or two black kids who are athletes, they're considered cool, they get invited to the big house and the loud party where the parents let them drink and smoke. What would you say to that kid now? Is it different? It is different. And my dad always used to say this to me. You really cannot live in fear. You can't exist that way. You're giving away your freedom to just live in fear all the time. I'm glad I had those experiences. You know what? I'm glad I had those experiences so that the first time a white girl batter eyes at me as an adult that I wasn't like, oh my God, a white girl likes me and ran off and married her. Not to say that people shouldn't do that if that's how they feel, but I needed to experience some stuff early on. And frankly, the more strapping and dominant as a ball player that the kids were, and I was probably 10th on that list of our team, the more attention and the more of that gaze that they got. And so I would tell that kid, go to that party. But the two of you, and this is what my dad used to do with us. He'd be like, the two of you are responsible for each other once you guys leave this house in this car. He knew we were getting into some shit. Right. But you guys got to look out for each other because you're entering a danger zone. And there can be fun in a danger zone. There can be learning and experience and all that stuff that I'm glad I got. But as I'm reliving it, going back into that basement now in my head, I'm looking at little baby Chad and I'm like... (laughs) Dude, yeah, you are in a scary place right now. Your big quit that started our conversation a year ago, Mm -hmm. it kind of kicked off your book, was about quitting trying to fit into white tech bro culture, basically. Are there seeds of that that go back to the social or which direction does that go? Did that inform your trying to fit into white tech bro culture? Or as you tried to fit into white tech bro culture, were you then kind of looking back at your past going, 
fuck, man, I would do that differently. Despite all of my parents' very intentional parenting, despite Morehouse College, I think, and I think this happens to a lot of people, I think at some point I let myself believe that white people were better. And I think at some point I wanted white people to say, you're okay. The reasons why I wanted it, they're kind of unavoidable. One of them was just, I wanted to make money. I wanted to get promotions. If you work at Google, Google is your life. Your dating prospects are at work. That's just what it was. I lived in Oakland. I would go to work, leave the house at 7, get back around 8 p.m. Yeah, you were there. Yeah, my dating prospects were at work. And they encouraged that. They have ball pits and exercise classes. I mean, they didn't say it out loud, but they celebrated when people would form couples and have babies. They would call them Google babies. Oh, It was really intense. I would literally be texting one of my boys who had gone to Wesleyan College before he transferred to Morehouse. And I would text him, what do white girls like? I would send him an outfit. I'd be like, do white girls like this? Oh, I remember this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But when the lights came on for you as far as, wait a minute, this is not me. Being a white tech bro, mm-hmm. I'm never going to do it as well as a white dude is going to do it. So why am I doing this? Was there any long string leading back to those parties? Or was it totally different? Because then you were appreciated for being black. I wouldn't say I was appreciated. I think I was a party favor. It was like the basketball team's here now. Here are the snacks and here are the beers. Right. We were a part of the offering. That's not appreciation. That's something terrible. But is it terrible that I used to think that Dwight Howard was so hot and have dreams about him? I never met the man. He was a body. I don't think that's terrible. I think it's sort of unavoidable if you find him to be attractive. But if you say, and this one's complicated, right? Right. When I was a little slutty living in New York, which was in my pre-Juliana days, I would kind of have the pregame party for Governor's Ball. Sure. And there was one year where there was this girl who was there. She was blonde-haired, blue-eyed girl who was really pretty and kind of edgy. The whitest, whitest white girl. Okay. There's some turning point. I'm sure you have felt this way as a woman, and I'm also sure you felt this way as Julie Bowen, where it's like, oh, man, I am a part of somebody's experience, Uh but I'm not really here with them. 100%. You know, she's like touching my hair and my hair is shorter at that point, but it's growing long. And I think a friend of mine who had seen me before tell people, get your fucking hands away from my hair. Don't even think about it, which I've said to you before, not in those words. Yeah. He was like, oh, why did you let her? She's hot. She's a pretty girl, man. I'm just going to let it happen. And I might get some. (laughs) Yeah, I'm just going to let myself be objectified. But it's a small moment that in the large arc is not good. It's not good for Dwight Howard that people probably think and look at him the way that they do, which is as a beefcake. I'm sure a lot of white people see him that way. Also, don't even get me started on the way the white people talk about NBA athletes in media. I can do a whole tangent on just that specifically. But is it any different than you looking at, I'm trying to think of a white supermodel or somebody who's very sexy and sexualized, somebody who's undeniably idolized as a sexy woman who is white. Let's make it personal. People see you that way, Julie. But not sexy. People see you as sexy. Let's talk about it. People don't see me as a body. Dwight Howard, I saw as a body. Okay, so here's where I think I make the distinction, or not even the distinction. Here's how it's similar, which is if there's some dominant group that you get opportunity from and maybe money and attention, sex, whatever it is, but that group remains the dominant group. Right. And you have to peacock to their desires to get the things that they want. That's terrible. It can't be like that. Do you know people who don't care, who basically are the 16-year-old you and kept growing along that trajectory, who have gone, sexualize me, touch me, I don't give a shit, just give me mine. 
I'm here to get what I want. And there's nothing wrong with that. We all are. Yes. I mean, I think all of this gets complicated when people start entering monogamous relationships. Before I even point a finger anywhere else, I think I know that I lead with trying to be eye candy for people a little bit. But you can't help it. I could help it. You look a certain way. Thank you, Julie. But I don't have to lean into it. And I'm not being grotesque about it. I think I'm respectful to my relationship and all that stuff. But I get it. You get what you get and you just have to use what you use. Julie, you know how to do your thing with it. Yeah, I can put on the six inch heels and the spanks and the push up bra and the whole thing and walk down a red carpet and get that kind of attention. But it's a choice. I can make that choice. I can also go no makeup, basketball shorts, baggy clothes, and no one sexualizes me in that regard. I get to make those choices. You look the way you look 24-7. You're very attractive. You're also cute because cute is different. It is, yes. I look like a little boy. You are adorably cute. You carry that with you all the time. It can help, but it's not an advantage for me. I understand what you're saying, but I keep trying to get it back to, listen, our show's called Quitters. As we look at this whole season, as we look at this year of getting to know each other, does your big quit about quitting dominant white culture, trying to get approval from it? Is that fair? I don't know that I have totally quit that. That's my ongoing struggle. I quit Google specifically, which to me was a belief that this staircase built by white people led somewhere for me. If I can get high enough on that staircase, I'll be safe. I can live a good life. I'll be accepted. I know that to be a lie. We all know that to be a lie. I had to face that I was avoiding that was a lie. That was my real quit. I was quitting this lie of I can climb and get promoted and earn and even potentially marry my way into the safe haven of whiteness. Mm -hmm. That is never going to happen for me. And I had to face that. That was my quit. I'm trying to figure out where the root of that was because we started this conversation just randomly talking about those first experiences of you sort of being objectified as a cool black athlete at white parties, being sexualized by white girls, and then ultimately ending up climbing a ladder, as you said, built by white people. Hmm. And then you were like, this is not going to lead me somewhere. Is there a long string that ties these things together or am I trying too hard? You're saying it. As I talk about those high school experiences, it's not all roses and adventure. I noticed that I'm invited here now, but I wasn't two seconds ago before I was on the basketball team. I noticed that the girls who look like me are not invited. I knew that it was imperfect. I knew that it was corrupt and ugly even. And it was house to house. I went in some houses through the back door. I couldn't not know that. But it's such a winding, shape-shifting kaleidoscope, Julie. It's not the same, but I imagine you must feel this with the approval of men to some extent, right? If someone went through my Instagram followers right now, they would probably find at least 70% of them have a lot more in common with you than they do with me. What? They are hugely and largely white women. Oh, that must bug the shit out of you. But that's really the question. Does it bug me? I think about it, but... There's opportunity in that. It doesn't suck when Brene Brown says your book is good. Yeah. I don't know what to do with that anymore. And now we're sitting here with each other and I don't know what to do with it. Has that changed in the last year? 
you wanting to be respected for your work and you don't feel like having to sell the cute or anything else. And at the same time, we're doing this. You've gotten more followers that you feel like look like white suburban moms kind of types. Yeah. Partly because (laughs) you're smart, partly because you're funny, partly because you're cute. We don't know, but all those things come together. Does your relationship to it change or are you still pushing back against it? I mean, I don't think I'm pushing back against it. What I'm trying to do at this point is do stuff that I believe in, stuff that I can sleep at night doing, work with people who don't drive me completely nutso. (laughs) I'm honestly trying to be more like you, Julie, which is to say, I'm trying to just focus on doing what I do and less concerned with the results, less concerned with who likes it and why and all this other shit. Just do what I do and walk away. Okay, so my last question on this, when we talked to Sarah Hyland, Ariel Winter, some others, some of the things that we ended up talking about was, could you ever quit social media? How does social media play into your life? How important is it to you? I'm not a native to all that. I go weeks without looking. Mm-hmm. If you did some project right now, a movie, a song, and you lost half of your social media followers <laughs> as a result, but it was something you really believed in. Yeah, This is me. This is my voice. I've never been more proud of something. And your number went in half. How would you feel? That would be really weird because as far as I can tell, social media followings don't really reduce like that. But I get the nature of the question, so I'll answer that, which is to say the most honest truth is that it would probably make me insecure and angsty. I wake up the next morning thinking about it and rolling around in bed. I think that would be the first wave that hit me. This actually relates to how I think about this show as a product, which is to say... I would feel so strongly about my connection with the remaining half that stuck around right? that I would have a better understanding of what to give them, which I think is really what my job is, which is to give to the people who fuck with me and let the other ones do what they do. That's your job? I think it's a combination of expressing, doing what I love, what I feel, giving that. But I do think a part of my job, and I'm having to find maturity in this because it used to just be like, I'm just going to say whatever I feel and you guys blah, blah, blah. And you're also helping me see it this way. A part of my job, yeah, is generosity. Angie Martinez gave me this little gift. She was like, stop worrying about what you can prove to people and think about what you can offer them. Oh, I like that. Yeah, it honestly makes life feel a little easier. It makes making art feel a little easier. It's not like I have to become something that I'm not so that I can show people that I'm this. I already have some good stuff. Just give it away. That's how I think about it now. So right now, could you write the same op-ed piece that you wrote for the New York Times? Could I write it the same? I could probably write it about the same. Would it resonate the same? I don't know. Do you have the same emotion that you had about white people being idiots (laughs) that you had in that moment? Yes. You wrote that at a point when you had, and I have no idea how these numbers fall out, but it was two years ago. I'm sure you've got more followers now. I had nothing. That was the moment where things started to turn. Right. And that's what it felt like to me was, I'm going to vomit my truth up right here and take it or leave it because I have nothing to lose. Now, you do have a little something to lose. No, that's right. I've read it several times. And when I read it the first time and I put it out of my mind, (laughs) it scared me. It made me uncomfortable. Yeah. And it wasn't until after I read that, and black magic. I was like, okay, can I sit with my own discomfort about this and learn something from it? And it is not an easy read. It's not an easy take for a white person who thinks that we're doing all the right things. And that was in air quotes. Yeah. But could you write it right now? Well, it's funny that you should ask. I think that 
having some success over these last couple years. Honestly, it has revealed new ways that white people hurt me because there's more of them in my life now. It is really funny you should ask. And I was never, ever going to even bring this up on this episode, but I have this show coming out for Audible and it's called Direct Deposit. And it's about what happens when black people start getting rich. Right. And the fifth episode, which is the first one that we finished in totality, is called Working with White People. And... (laughs) (laughs) I fucking cannot wait for this podcast. I think you, among the people that are white and in my life, are going to fuck with it. I am meaning for it to be very much in the most pure and raw and honest tone as I see things. And I work with one white producer on it. I work with a Korean producer on it. The studio is Audible, which is owned by Amazon. It's just the challenge has changed a little bit for me. So my feelings, they're probably a little more mature. They're a little more refined, but the pain is real. Nothing else has changed. I like hearing that the pain is real. I don't like hearing that you're in pain. (laughs) I know what you mean. Yeah. But I like hearing that the answer is, no, I don't feel complacent. It's funny how this thing has evolved because... Depending on who your partners are on anything, it takes a certain shape. Right. And if I was doing this by myself or with someone of color or a black person, it would have a different voice. But my stuff that's still my stuff, you know, in a silo, it still comes from that voice. So here's my question for you. Okay. This is our last episode of season one. Mm -hmm. We're coming back in season two with video. I know. What you're known for is acting in front of cameras. And I don't have that experience. How do you think that is going to affect the show? How do we make it elevate the show? And what can you tell me about how to get comfortable with that? Oh, I don't know how you get comfortable with it other than turn your camera off. I mean, turn your self view off Uh because it's like staring in a mirror and the obsession or the constant reminder of how am I coming across? How do I look is incredibly unhelpful for me when I'm working, when I'm acting and is unhelpful for me when I'm talking to you. As far as my concern about it is very practical. Oh, great. Now we're going to get judged on how we look. But whatever. I mean, I'm old. And at a certain point, I want to work and do work I care about. And I care about this. So come on the adventure if you want. And if you think I look like a haggard old bitch, okay. That's all right. I still got something to say. And on a very practical matter, I wonder how we'll be able to edit. (laughs) Yeah. Big chunks. I get how you can edit. But, um, er, uh, yeah. spaces, stupid shit that is said often by me where I'm just like, blah, blah, blah. I worry that it's going to be harder to edit, but I like what we talk about. And I want to be, as you said, generous about it. I'd like as many people to be part of this conversation as possible. So Angie Martinez, yes, I'm taking her note on this and it's not, what do we have to prove? But what do we have to give? Mm-hmm. I want to put that on a pillow because <laughs> that's what suburban moms do. <laughs> Or on a wine tumbler in a fun font. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It has to be about the, otherwise it gets too self-reflective. We get too in the mirror ball. I think it's dangerous. So apparently this is the way the podcast world works. I thought it was an audio medium and it turns out it is also a visual medium. People enjoy seeing people talk. Okay, I'll play, (laughs) but I'm not going to play in full hair and makeup. Right. How do you feel about that? 
I'm always surprised when I see pictures of me because I don't buy magazines. I don't look at websites like gotcha, paparazzi websites and stuff like that. So when I do see pictures of me that'll pop up of all glammed out or something, those surprise me more because I'm used to seeing me in the mirror every day and I know what I look like. So welcome to the party, people. Turns out with professional hair and makeup, I can rock it out. Mm. And without, I'm okay. Do you think that having video will change the conversations? I don't know. That'll be interesting. I think it's going to be interesting for our guests. I wonder if it's going to be harder for the guests because I know when I go on podcasts, and I'm sure when you do, they tell you there's no video, Mm -hmm. there's just stills. I turn my camera off and I don't care, but I hope our guests feel protected. But I'm hoping that it keeps the conversation real regardless. Yeah, I'm excited. It's a new adventure, so I'm into that. This is it. This is the end of our first season. We're going off onto the summer. We are going to come back for a season two, and I'm really excited about it. We have some awesome guests lined up. You have two other podcasts that you're doing. Yeah, two other shows coming out and a book to write. All this summer? Books do January 1st, so not really. What's the book? I don't know that you're writing a book. The book is called New Money. Ah. It has similar subject matter. So we're going to come back, though, and I don't want to lose you. Am I allowed to text you over the summer? Yeah, I had like a little emotional feeling a couple minutes ago where I was like, damn, I'm probably not going to see you or hear your voice that much for the next few months. I mean, there's an upside. Suburban mom can't ruin your enjoyment. (laughs) You're not going to text me about Kendrick Lamar anymore? You have to. I may have to because I trust your musical taste and I trust that your take on pop culture, just because of your age, your background, (laughs) the conversations we've had. And I'm like, wait, am I buying into something that's bad? That's not good. Am I buying into some (laughs) shit? And I do want to be in touch with you over the summer. I know we will. I just want to say where we started is where I'd like to end. I love you. I love you too, Julie. I do. I love you, Chad. I love you now. I didn't love you at the beginning. (laughs) You don't have to. And you're allowed to fall out of love with me and love me again. But (laughs) I do. I do love you. And I respect you. And any friction, any conflict we've had, I always feel has left me in a better place, not a worse one. I've learned a lot just doing this one year. And I'm super psyched to do a second season. Yeah. God, I learned so fucking much about working with someone who's 34 from a different background, but sort of similar, how we have these things that we both hate, (laughs) and then how I'll stumble onto shit with you that you're just like, no, no. And I (laughs) love you for it. I love you for it because I trust you. Me too. I think about the one real fight that we had all the time. (laughs) All the time, man. Because you give people so much grace and energy 95% of the time. You want to see a whole person. And I felt like I got to see the whole person in that moment. And I was like, wow, that's some energy. I'm going to channel some of that energy. Yeah, when I get to my full boss bitch. Yeah, you pin your ears back, man. (laughs) I did pin my ears back. You do. Well, we've seen the full person. I'm going to accept it. We love it. And you're a full person. And I love it. Absolutely. I just want to say thank you for doing this. And thank you for believing in the content concept and believing in me. I believe so deeply. I can tell that you do because we're doing another season, to be honest. Mm -hmm. And I also want to say the same to producer Rachel and producer Kate and producer Casper. And producer Rob. And producer Rob and all the guests. And first and foremost, to everybody that's listened and given feedback and shared with friends. I think we're off to a good start and we'll see y'all in a couple months. Thank you all for joining us. And in the meantime, save up your quitting stories. We can't wait to hear them. Bye-bye. Bye.